Hello, you're listening to Just Screen It, Case Studies in Creative Distribution. I'm your host, Colin Stryker, and I am not an expert in indie film distribution. I am an independent filmmaker working towards making my first narrative feature a horror film entitled The Grove. Uh, As I've been contemplating my own eventual distribution strategy, I've come to the conclusion that we need more data, more transparency, more information about how the various distribution options that are out there have worked for people. So I decided to start this podcast to help capture some of the experiences of those who have already been through it, whether successful or otherwise, and from those experiences, help both listeners and myself better understand this really complex, crazy landscape of independent film distribution today. So each week, I'll be bringing on a filmmaker who has self-distributed or been personally involved in the distribution of their film. My hope is that future filmmakers can take the knowledge gleaned from the show and use it to make their own decisions on how to best distribute their films. Hey, everybody. Today, I'm talking with Chris Mays about releasing his sci-fi movie, Hemisphere, which was shot mostly in his basement during the COVID lockdown and is now available on Amazon, Google Play, and Tubi. What Chris accomplished here is a great lesson in DIY filmmaking, where Chris conceived the movie totally based on the resources available at the time, a basement he could build a set in, a relatively simple character-based premise, and a small cast and crew. I guess the only exception to that rule was that his movie is actually set in space on a space station. But Chris definitely made it work. Chris eventually signed with Indie Rights to distribute his film, but along the way, he did some good hard research into his options. In our chat, Chris talks very openly about his decision-making process and the various pros and cons that he considered along the way. Although the jury is still out on the ultimate financial success of the film, There's still a lot to glean here for filmmakers pondering similar decisions. I hope you all enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. So without further ado, here is my chat with Chris Mays. All right, I'm here with Chris Mays. Welcome to the show. Great. Thanks for having me, Colin. It's good to see you. So yeah, just starting out, just if you could give us a little bit of your origin story, how you got into filmmaking, give us a little background, and then we'll talk about distribution from there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I actually started, uh, this will probably date myself a little bit, but I started with film. Yeah, oh yeah. You know, like in in high school and and then went to film school. I attended UCLA film school and which was still at that time very much film-based. They were, they had some video cameras, but they were hard to get. And we didn't quite know that equipment, whereas we all knew how to do a movieola and how to deal with the physical, you know, film and mag and all that stuff. So that is what my sort of background was. And then I uh, ended up working as a screenwriter for probably six or seven years after I graduated. Uh, So really was kind of focused on writing at that point and probably would have stayed with that. But eventually I got restless and I missed the hands-on aspects of filmmaking and had an opportunity to, to move out here to the East Coast from Los Angeles. I worked for Discovery Communications, and then for National Geographic, and got very much involved with the post-production and production side of things. Mm-hmm. And with documentaries, they're really, they're, there is a script. It's an outline. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, the story goes wherever it goes. You, you know, you hope that you can steer it a certain way. But uh, as far as connecting it to sort of the Hollywood narrative storyline of filmmaking, you know, documentary is very, very different. But it was, you know, it turned out to be a really great discipline. And when it came time to that, I wanted to make a, a film and I felt like I was ready to do a feature film. A lot of those documentary skills actually came in handy as far as the size of the crew, being flexible and, you know, other things that I sort of took with me in sort of mapping out how to do it. But so I don't know if I'm a, a, a typical example. I, I very much wanted to make films and I did one in L.A., before I was married, even the woman who is now my wife was the producer, and it was 35 millimeter, 20 minutes short, and it was expensive, and it was I needed a lot of other people to make it, you know, on the post side and the production side, and so I walked away from that with, you know, I had this short that kind of was a film, and I could show it on video to people, but it didn't open a ton of doors for me, and I kind of walked away from directing for a, a long time, you know, had kids and a family, and it really took like COVID to get me thinking long hours at home working from the house, walking around my basement, I just started going, God, this could be a film studio. I could build, I could build flats and make a set. I could make some sort of story. So that was, it was a bit 
kind of reverse engineered, but that was the impetus for directing a feature. Yeah, that's that, that's super cool. And yeah, so I guess it was. I'm guessing you went to film school back in the 90s, 80s, 90s. If you're so working, this would have been actually. Like in you don't the, have to. Oh, uh, during sorry. the 80s. Okay. Yeah, right. mid, mid to late 80s. In fact, there was really yeah, there wasn't a sense of an internet or a digital distribution yeah. arena. It was just either you went to the movie theater or you rented VHSs or you had DVDs. And so in a lot of ways, my own sort of philosophy about the industry today, the Hollywood established film industry, I think is kind of stuck on that. Much like sort of if you get stuck on a bad relationship and you get hung up on all those issues. Yeah. The, the, I know this even from the documentary companies that it used to be that your home video sales were big, you know, were significant. Half, half the budget of the movie maybe could be covered by that. So you would pre-sell those and you, it, there was a whole mechanism by which you could make a, a big project and, and have it all financed from broadcast, home video, et cetera. So kind of string a bit from your question, but uh, no, 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 to look at fine. where we are now is so, yeah. so different yeah. post-COVID when people got into their houses and started watching stuff in their own home and, and home video pretty much died out. It, it was on the decline, but I think in many ways that kind of killed it. Yeah, totally. And and you're not straying away from my question at all, because I was, that's kind of what I was getting at was like seeing how, so you went from, and I'm sorry, then when you made your short, your 35 millimeter short, that was when? That would have been in 94, 95. Gotcha. Like yeah, 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 yeah. So, right. So like and a was, lot of my guests on who are on, you know, on the older side, not to yeah. date you, but you know, who aren't on the younger side, let's put it that way. They have, they like all have, they I'm, all have I'm, that. I'm, I'm post 40 is what I like. Yeah. <laughs> so am I, by the way. So, but yeah. you know, a lot of them have that sort of, sort of look back to the nineties and the era of the nineties, the kind of golden era of like independent film or what we think of as independent film now, you know, the Kevin Smiths and the, so, and, and that's where I, yeah, I went to film school in the nineties. Right. So, yeah, you know, that, I think that that, that kind of like, notion of making a film and getting discovered at a big film festival and right, you know, getting picked right. up for a million dollar, you know, something or other, you know, like that, that had its sort of origin, or at least the spread of that had kind of had its origin in the nineties. And yeah, I think we're still, absolutely. you know, we're still under, under that. Some of us are still under that mentality. I, and I don't, you know, I don't, yeah, I don't want to seem negative because I, I, I think I was in, in yeah. a lot of respects, oh, yeah. you know, yeah, I yeah. love, I love, Robert Rodriguez's book, Rebel Without Rebel Crew, Without, yep, Soderbergh's yep. book about sex lies, even Spike Lee's book about She's Got a Habit, are all very much these great, really cool stories of these guys who had no money, who did this little thing, or it was a big thing, but they did it with very little, were very resourceful, and had some, you know, some great opportunities, you know, come their way. It, that stuff can be inspiring, and you need to be inspired to, to get through the, you have to have moments of great ignorance yeah i like to say that you get fixated on god i would be i'd love i really i can see in my head a scene where somebody walks you know in this case a big display screen where you see a planet and then they're walking and you just have like an a argument happening with two people but in the background you realize no we're in the middle of freaking space while this is happening so <laughs> yeah those kind of thoughts which are very much spurred by i think what you're talking about is is that you're you want to believe that you're capable of doing something like a, a superhero you know that that maybe maybe you'll be one of those but i still think you can do great things even if you know if you don't find yourself on the great side of you know festival being a festival darling yeah yeah and i mean that I like to I like to almost call it a delusion <laughs> that that uh, yeah, you know filmmakers yeah. like to maybe, operate maybe under a helpful, sort of potentially a helpful delusion. Yeah, 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 yeah. You yeah. know, uh, I mean, I can you know honestly like there's there's lots of ways that one can spend one's energy in life, but you know, pursuing creative goals, even if they're somewhat delusional, I think is one of the better ways that one can spend well, one's I life. Also, and yeah. so I have no problem with that delusion. Yeah. I have no problem having it myself. I have no problem with others having it. I think it's a it's a great thing. And you know, do you need hundreds of people to have those delusions for every one of them that is truly successful and makes a mark yeah. on culture and society and that kind of thing. You need, you know, you need people to dream that and it can't you, just be the ones that succeed that have that dream, you know? So. Yeah. I, no, I think, you, I think for, for the motivation, it's important. And I think you have no real way of telling what the outcome will be of your particular project. Yeah. You know? yeah. If I were to look at where we are with Hemisphere today versus where I thought, you know, a year and a half ago, when I was in post and I didn't have the special effects worked out yet, I would have been surprised. I would have been like, really? Wait, it's going to, 
Amazon and in the UK and, you know, whatever, whatever sort of bumps you're seeing of, of visibility or interest in it would have surprised me because I would have been sure, oh, we're going to get, you know, sci-fi fanatics and this and that. And then you sort of see it steering a different way. So while you can't control that, it is still good to have, you know, I think the big dreams at the outset. And you, your crew is going to need you. To, it, I don't think they want a director who's like, oh, you know, doubting themselves in the corner. You know? Totally. Right. Yeah, yeah, totally. And, you know, and I think that that's, that's kind of a big recurring theme on this podcast is, is sort of that the notion of like the the do, d- DIY filmmaker, right? So so maybe the the from that from the '90s era, we've inherited this dream of you know getting into the big film festival and getting discovered and all that thing. And and maybe maybe the technology and the way that distribution works has changed enough that that dream is just not realistic. But we're still clinging to it. But I think that you know another influence that we're very much is still alive is not necessarily the distribution side of things, but the, the go out and just make a movie side of things, you know, and just do it. Like you don't need to, you don't need anybody's permission. You don't need a big studio system to tell you, you can do this. You can just go out and do it. And that's alive more than anything else right now. You know, I I would totally agree. When I made the first short film dead air, that was, I think it was like $30,000 total for a little 20 minute, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And when I looked at what today with the lightweight equipment and lighting gear, which is very minimal of what you need now to you know light a set, all the things that are available now, desktop editing and all these tools that are available to filmmakers are much, much, much more affordable. And you can learn them. Oh, a single person, there's no reason they couldn't learn to direct, write, edit. If they're yep. so inclined, you know, they could do DP work too. I, I sort of handed that over. I, I recognize... As much as I love framing shots and coming up with the look of something, I think I'm much better served by having a you know a good DP when they're just focused on that are going to do they're going to bring a lot to the show, and so that's the of all the disciplines I'd say that's the one that I'm happier to let go. But I agree with you that that cost wise it's it's there's there are opportunities that didn't exist even six or seven years ago for independent filmmakers. Yeah, yeah, and and that's you know that's. It's just at a, I think, an amazing time that we live in that that is available to us. And yeah. it's created issues with distribution because so many people are doing that. There's so much content out there. It's hard to there get eyeballs, that. you know. So there's sort of an upside and a downside to it. But, you know, I'll kind of take the upside in the sense that I just love that anybody can go out there and make a movie and make a pretty good looking movie, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, at a, you know, for some people it's what they can put on a credit card. Not that that's I'm endorsing doing that, but you know, that kind of thing. And, and for some, it's just, you know, raising ten, a few tens of thousand dollars from crowdfunding or whatever, you know, that like that it's so accessible. So it's great, but yeah. So to kind of shift to hemisphere then, like, and I think it's, you know, very much reflective of what we're talking about is that hemisphere is a movie, a sci-fi movie takes place on a space station <laughs> that you still nev- nevertheless, I think I, like doing a little research basically made in your basement, right? Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. I would say the majority, there's some, a few exteriors and other locations that were used. I ended up, you know, telling my wife, I'm just going to use this part of the basement. You know, we had a finished, we had a laundry room side, about a third of it. And the other two thirds was this finished area yeah. with a big room and a bedroom and a bathroom and a little kitchenette. And I just said, we're not using this anymore. So I'm going to take this and I'm going to make a movie here. And it spread a bit like a fungus. I had, you know, <laughs> some of the scenes are like, that's the laundry room because it looked more industrial and there were some vents in the ceiling. So I turned that into the crew quarters, for example. You know? So, so there was definitely some creep, mission creep, we'll call it. But yeah, it was, it was, that was a big challenge for me when I was envisioning it. I actually wrote the script while I was building sets. I knew that I wanted to do some kind of story with a, I think initially I had the idea of a man and a, a computer stuck around the sun. And I wrote probably three drafts of that and I just couldn't get it to work. And I showed it to Corey Krinsky, who's the producer on Hemisphere. And he said, you know, you, maybe you need another person. Maybe it's, there's something about two human beings engaging that's far more interesting to watch than a man yeah. talking to an inner, you know, computer across the room. So, so that's kind of got me to the idea of what eventually became the, the current sort of narrative for it, which is, you know, a woman gets hired by her ex-husband to go explore the space station that seems to have been abandoned and to find out what happened. 
you know? And so I thought I can, I can, if I can have a, enough of a murder mystery, or, you know, it becomes a murder mystery, but enough of a mystery starting and then have a second character emerge who knows a lot more than the first character and then have them really butting heads, just have two, you know, wildly different personalities and different opinions on the company that they work for. And, and so it was, a little bit like a play in design in that I thought I just need to have a good interplay between the two main characters and enough of, you know, three or four or five believable sets that I can tell the audience she doesn't have access to the whole space station. She only right, can go in right. these rooms because the rest is on lockdown because something happened. There was a catastrophe, you know, so I'm, that's me tap dancing a bit to say, just calm down. I'll show you some stuff. It'll be some sci-fi cool stuff. It won't be probably the most amazing, you know, stuff. But the other part of it was I want to do a story about what human beings are like, which for me is fascinating that you would go somewhere far from home, millions of miles from home, and you're you're there for six, seven, eight months, say, working for a company, not seeing your loved ones. And what, what does that do to people? So that, you know, those are sort of the two things that collided. Uh, uh, and then uh, and then the rest became, you know, eventually what, what you saw. But yeah, yeah, I, I think that's super cool. And just you know, you're sort of like, you're embracing all of the sort of, uh, I don't know, all, all of the wisdom that goes with making low budget independent movies, you know, which is a yeah. small cast and, you know, simple locations, you know, setting something in space maybe doesn't quite go with that conventional wisdom, right, right. but you found a way to make it work anyway. Right. And, yeah, and, and yeah. that, you know, that's even better. Like, like you found a way to, to have this vision of something that takes place in outer space, but you can still basically do most of it in your basement. Like that's yeah. awesome. Well, try, try there. And there's some, there's some other, um, there's an excellent movie called oxygen. It's a French movie. Huh? Natalie Laurent, I think, is the lead actress. And the whole thing takes place in a pod that she wakes up in, this sort of biopod. And it was such an amazing accomplishment. When I saw that, I'm like, God, so other people are doing really, really contained movies. I thought yeah. there's got to be. So, you know, I, I sort of, I knew there was a way to do this. And th I do think the sci-fi community, in hindsight, they're, they're very, you know, they're sticklers. So yeah. the report card will come back and some of them like it and get it. And some of them are like, you know, this is not at all the, the caliber of sci-fi that I'm accustomed to, which I totally, I understand that completely, you know, so, but it was a fun challenge and it was born of this, as we were talking about earlier, delusion or ignorance. I think in my <laughs> case, you know, I just, in my head, I thought I, if I can make the central sort of narrative work and these two actors are good, I'm confident I can fill in the rest. I can get, you know, I've got somebody that I know can, that can do CGI for all the exterior stuff. And so, you know, again, for that challenge, it was it 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 worked for me as you know a first feature film. I think it taught me a lot about you know don't maybe next time don't have if it's not set in the future. What if it's you do a story set on Earth? Mm -hmm. That's a lot fewer problems to deal with, you know, right. with, uh, as far as set design and so forth. So sure, yeah, but I, I mean, I think that that you know a few points there, you know, just to harp on on your last point a little bit is is filming filmmaking is always a learning process right so yes. you always yes. take you can't you can never expect to make a perfect film i don't think martin scorsese expects to make a, per a perfect film you know yeah you know you always going into any film i think is a learning opportunity that you carry on to your next film you know and so Absolutely. if you learn some lessons that you can carry to the next one i think that's that's terrific and it doesn't matter you know it doesn't matter if if it they're all films are always going to succeed in certain ways and fail in certain ways. And you, the failures are just as, you know, they're just as interesting and important as the successes in my mind, you yeah. know? Yeah. So, and I, you know, I'm not saying your film failed in any way, you know, I'm not harping on any, any of those particular things, but it just sounds like you took something from that things that you would do differently the next time around. Yeah. You can't, no, I you just know? think it, and it, I mean, it was, you know, there's very much a, an evolution that occurs, you know, and yeah, you, you start out thinking, I'm making a movie about this. In yeah. my head, I was like, I'm making a movie where she goes and then she discovers this. And when, I'm, when I got to the point of editing it, there was stuff that really started hitting me. I'm like, this is like a murder mystery. Like she just found a dead body. Like, you know, hopefully that's not, you know, giving it away. But early on, one of the first scenes is she finds a dead body. So in my, as I'm editing it, then that really stuck with me more like, okay, she can't just go in that next scene to like, okay, now I'm going to be exercising. It's like, oh, wait a second. There's a dead corpse, you know, yeah, yeah. 30 feet away from you or 50 <laughs> feet away from you. Yeah. So it, it became very clear, this is a murder mystery. And when I started structuring it along that line, 
a lot of the other, you know, in the early edits, that, you know, there were things I tried that didn't quite work. And, and it really became structurally clear. I didn't know it when I was directing it, but it became apparent during editing that, that this is what you're making. Your genre movie is has more in common with a murder mystery than even, say, a sci-fi human AI sort of conflict. So, right, right. Uh, so there's good learning. Yeah. And, and I mean, I, I think that speaks to another point that I was going to make, which is that regardless of whether the set is the most dazzling sci-fi set you can come up with or whatever, you know, there's always going to be people who are looking for that. They're looking for, yeah. you know, awesome visuals, you know, and stuff like that. And you, you just can't, you can't please them necessarily with a film like this. But really, if you, for you, it's just, you know, these sets that you created in your basement are just a place that you set this story, right? And so what you're going to get, the audience that you're going to get to respond to your movie are going to be the people who are going to be into the story. And the, you know, the production design and all that stuff is not that crucial as long as the story is good and holds their attention, that kind of thing, you know? And I think that that's, that's the way low-budget filmmakers need to think. They need to think about, yeah. you know, telling the best story possible. And audiences will forgive a lot of other things that may not be as in league with what we see from the big studios or whatever. Right. Because the big studios don't take chances on stories like this. Absolutely. No, there's definite freedom there. And I don't want to give short shrift to, so we had an art director on Hemisphere. Yeah, yeah. Gabby Salbert. And she was hugely helpful. I mean, I had, you know, I had really the barest of a set built. And she would walk in and be like, this is crew quarters. So like their stuff should be there. Someone should yeah, have a diary. Yeah. There should be d dirty socks over here. You know, she walked through, she, she went shopping in my house and got all kinds of stuff from around the house and went into this set that was, that I had the walls and dimensions and it had been painted and was lit, was pre-lit, but it was missing all of those sort of, she calls them textures, but it's stuff that your eye reads, the actors respond to it. And when you show up, it's really what you're seeing. So you can also, with the camera control, I remember seeing The Mandalorian. I was stunned. The first episode of The Mandalorian, when I saw how they shot the front of his ship, it's mm -hmm. like, oh, we're just seeing over the dashboard. There's The Mandalorian. There's little baby Yoda eventually. And occasionally they cut to him pressing buttons with lights. But it was really when I looked at him, like I took a pencil, I put it like on freeze frame and sketch. I'm like, damn, that's like two little L-shaped, you know, flats. I can build that. And so it is very much where you look at what is the minimum amount that I have to show the audience either how we're shooting it or how we built the set and we're going to cover it with, you know, these three shots, but you see enough of something, you know, that you're so to, to what you're saying, you're right. You do restrict in a yeah. way that you wouldn't, if you had a bigger budget, you'd show those things off. You'd be like, let's have them walk down to this cool hallway with these really cool runner lights. You know, we didn't have that. So we tended to, I think originally I wanted hallways and those were a, a casualty of, you know, the budget. So you have cuts. They leave yeah. a room, you cut, they walk into another room. And yeah, it's yeah. like, well, yeah. there was in your mind, there's an imaginary hallway of 10 feet, you know, between them. So uh, anyway, so there's ways you work with that. But I also highly advise any independent filmmaker, especially if it's someone ambitious, the role of the art director, you know, super helpful for that. Yeah, totally agree. And and yeah, I certainly don't mean to I don't know what the word is, but but you know I I recognize that the art direction was a big part of the production design and kind of selling that we're in a real space station and not in somebody's basement and stuff like that. And I watched the film before I read about it, so you know I was I remember when I read about it and was like, oh he made this in his basement during COVID, <laughs> like I, wow, you know I was impressed with that. So the movie did yeah. a, definitely did a good job of making me good. feel like I was in a space that was a real space built for this, you know. Yeah. And yeah, reading that it was in someone's basement was quite a surprise to me. So yeah, and I think that was key, definitely what you say, the art director, like like filling the space with stuff that makes it look like a lived in space, which is all that you really need to, you know, get out of it. So yeah. Yeah, yeah. And it, that worked great. You'll notice that, yeah, watching other movies. Now that you that I sort of learned that here, now I watch other things. I'm like, oh, that's really cool, you know. And that's yeah. something way in the background that you register and you're like, there's not gonna ever be a close up of that, but it's there, it's a something for the actors to respond to. And so, yeah, so totally. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, we've talked a lot about production and that's great. It sets a context, but let's talk about distribution more. So, you know, my first question is, is like going into this, you're in COVID, you're sort of thinking, what can I do in my house? That kind of thing. Are you thinking about a distribution strategy at this point? I, you know, I really wasn't. I was, yeah. I was sort of, because I didn't have a ton of experience with that. I was kind of avoiding thinking about that. What happened was, I went to work for a company and then I left that company after a political campaign and, and 
in like 2022. So literally like two years ago, I was hired by a guy to oversee the release of his independent feature film. And it was released by Vertical Entertainment. It was a theatrical release and, and home video digital. So I got this great experience with him seeing exactly how it works. He had a PR department, marketing team, the distribution folks at Vertical, he had the actors who were SAG actors. So it's called uh, The Road to Galena. And what I saw firsthand was, wow, this is how distribution works. This is how the marketing, how all this stuff dovetails. So when your movie comes out, you've maximized all of those things. So that hopefully they'll have the most value, you know, the most impact. Yeah. So after that, I, I think I shot Hemisphere literally started shooting it like two weeks or three weeks after that movie was released. Wow. I sort of did all my heavy lifting for that. And I remember asking him, can I take off a weekend and a couple of days on either end to, to start, you know, to shoot this thing. So that's where I really started thinking about while I was shooting Hemisphere, I didn't know how, but I knew I was confident soon after that I attended AFM mm -hmm. for the first film. And again, I met other indie filmmakers. I met a bunch of distributors and I'm like, okay, I get how this thing works now. And I walked away with this knowledge of there are big, big, big companies, big projects, and there are a lot of little tiny ones. And there's companies you never heard of in Singapore and, you know, far corners of the world that are releasing, you know, name US movies, but they're in charge of that territory. So you sort of realize it's this industry of, you know, thousands of thousands of little uh, arms reaching from it. So I think that influenced me just from the standpoint of, I, I took some of those distributor names and eventually reached out to them with Hemisphere as I felt as it was getting closer to taking shape. And that steered me toward, you know, getting to the uh, distributor they're with now. We, so we ended up eventually signing with Indie Rights, which is a very, in a, some ways, very hands-off, yeah. but also very, very hands-on that they're very present and available for phone calls and consultations and tell me, should I do more of this or that? But they leave it to you to do those things and you you don't incur all the, all the additional fees. Right. So what, what I discovered is I had probably five different conversations with distributors when Hemisphere was kind of at almost picture lock, you know, it was close enough and I had enough of the roughs of the exterior CGI stuff cut in that I was able to share screeners with them and they liked it, but they the, the deal terms, again, I knew from Road to Galena what a contract looked like. So when I got their contract, I started comparing things and I'm like, I don't want to sign a contract for 15 years. Mm -hmm. that I've never worked, been in business with before. Or I don't want to pay them up front, you know, $3,000 of their internal cost to put it on different platforms. Or some of them charge you to cut a trailer or make a poster for you. So there's a lot of things you need to be mindful of because you can spend a lot. And then you have to look at, well, wait a second, how long will it take to pay that back if I spend $10,000 in marketing costs? Even though I'm really excited to be with this distributor, making that 10 grand back will take me some time. And, you know, and you, you want to weigh all of those variables. So I don't know if I have a typical path, but that was my, you know, thinking process was to look at really the length of the term, how much out of pocket will I have to spend and the deliverables list. Every mm -hmm. indie filmmaker should to try to become adept at sort of working with that because indie rights had like seven deliverables. Mm -hmm. And the other ones, some of my talk to were just long. It was like, you know, 20 items, you know, wow. yeah. some of which if I need to get a, if, if you do a theatrical release, there are costs with that. And then you need to pay for a motion picture association rating card, which is like almost $5,000. So there's a, a bunch of things that you start. It's almost like a menu. You're like with, with indie rights, when I sat down with them, I'm like, I don't want to do a theatrical release because I know how much that costs per week. And it's very, you, you probably will lose your money with that. So I, for me, you know, with, uh, I just looking at Hemisphere with no name actors, and they don't know who I am. The movie is not a proven, you know, commodity yet. It wouldn't have probably been a great idea to do a theatrical release. Yeah. And for some of the the other things too, just marketing wise, I didn't want to spend or be, you know, looking at not knowing what some of those costs are. Some of the times distributors will put in their contract that they can deduct 5% for it, internal admin costs. And unless you audit them, which would be hard to do anyway. You never know what that is. You know, yep. what is yep. that? They can know? be whatever they want it to be, I think. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. the problem. They took, right? a, they took a trip for 10 films yep. to a market. They might charge all 10 for the airline 
seat, you know? So anyway, that what what I liked about indie rights and I and I got to them through Jay Horton and a couple other people that you've you guys know. And yep. there's some really excellent materials I found just on YouTube that were helpful just to hear other people articulate things. And I'm like, okay, I'm not crazy. This is doable. I thought between me and some of my crazy film school friends, and I'm still in touch with, I know I, we can cut a trailer together. Yeah. That I bet will be pretty good. Yeah. And I had a graphics person that I knew, and I'm like, I bet with them, we can make a couple of variations of posters that will work. So I tried to really work from a grassroots, you know, f- free except for labor sort of standpoint with all the sort of marketing materials that Indie Rights requires or that any distributor really would require. So the good news is it really just came down to, you know, I think I have a three-year term with them. They have a very fair percentage they take. And then everything else is on me to to both create and deliver and marshal. So I'm happy with that because I've learned a lot from that. And I think, you know, next time if I have the budget, yes, it'd be nice to hire somebody, you know, a coordinator for for four weeks to do a lot of these things. But yeah. I'm glad at least I understand how they work. Yeah, right. Yeah, totally makes sense. It sounds like you put a lot of thought, you know, for someone who I started this question out, you know, asking if you, you know, had thought as you were going into making the film too much about oh, distribution. You, you're it's right. totally fine that you, that did you, we, that you, did we really get that it. far? You asked yeah, yeah, no. And I, I, I like, okay, like, sorry. I'm not, I have no problem with you, with you okay. continuing to tell the story. It's a See, great this story. Is the problem. I'm a, I'm a narrative. Yeah, uh, yeah, no, no, figure, it's great. So it's just interesting. So. Yeah. <laughs> it's just interesting that you went from that to actually sounding like you educated yourself really well and made some really smart choices in terms of you know, the kind of final path that you ended up taking. For a first time filmmaker, yeah, you don't have to know yet all the yeah. answers. You don't have to know. You might not know beyond how you will make it. You know, if you know enough about how you'll make the thing, you can trust, you know, don't go mortgage your house, come up with a reasonable way. I think the way we financed Hemisphere was I self-financed part of it and I was able to to negotiate deferrals with the cast and crew, which was a okay. huge help. Yeah. Which, you know, I'll, I'll owe them now as, as you know, revenue comes in from uh, distribution, but that allowed me to do it in a way where I wasn't risking, you know, some huge sum of money. And, and, uh, and then the anxiety of that would drive you to like, I need to get a distributor. You know, I don't know what, I, I don't work well under pressure. Some people yeah. do. But I, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So just a, a couple of follow-up questions with that. First of all, can you, can you speak to the budget of the film at all? I know that's a, some yeah, people so like, it, you know. It's. You know, it's listed on IMDb, I think it's like 135,000. Uh-huh. The Really the hard costs with what I self-financed and, and deferrals is about 75,000. Okay. And then we have, you know, the sweat equity of the editing. I got very, very reasonable post deals with the colorist. Nice. Uh, DC Color that provided the color grade, the sound facility. So I kind of added in those things as, you know, these are kind of real world costs for this. But I, I think the out-of-pocket was about 75. With, with including deferrals too. Right. Okay. Yeah. So going into kind of spending that that money, I know you said you didn't really have a distri- distribution plan going into it. You ended up, you know, definitely with something coming out of that. But yeah. were you always thinking of this project as sort of a business? Were you always thinking of it as something that you are determined to make your money back on? Or was it more just, you know, you're kind of you're kind of okay with losing that money and getting the experience and moving on to the next film, something like that. Like yeah, what was your I think thought process behind that? It was yeah, it was probably the former. I, I've been yeah. around budgets for too long. You know, I did a lot of production management work for a few years. So I've done that for so long. It's just so I think I very much was conscious of how do I I want to pay the people back that I, I feel I owe to them, the deferrals. Really, even before I pay myself back, I feel that obligation. So I think that drove it a lot was I want to at least break even. I think right. I think if I don't spend too much and I can make this entertaining enough, you know, that was the goal. And, and you know, I, I, I would like to make that in year one. I don't know if we will. I have to sort of wait and see. But I know that that's a, a key year for more, most uh, independent films is your first year release is when you have the maximum sort of power with an audience, just because it's it's a new, it's considered it's new, a new it's fresh. film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, when did when did it actually release? When did it be, become publicly available? It came out late October of last year. Okay, so gotcha. It came out really in time for the November December holiday season, which was pretty important. And that that was a little bit of a surprise how fast I had like 
I turned it in, I turned in all the deliverables and they had to QC it. I thought, I wonder if they'll flag this shot or the <laughs> going through. Oh, I hope I got the audio levels right here. They could flag it for that. And they came back after like three days and said, okay, I passed QC. Wow. We're getting it ready to, you know, we'll start submitting to Amazon now, but they can take up to three or four weeks. So I thought, okay. And then it, at some point, Linda Nelson, who's one of the uh, two owners at Indie Ride, said, "Okay, you're live tomorrow. You know, wow. Sunday, okay. Sunday afternoon." She says, "You're live tomorrow on on Amazon Prime and on uh, Google Play." So that was like, "Oh, damn." Okay, and I'd done. You know, when once I signed with Indie Rights, I did manage to convince both actresses to to do a Zoom interview. Yeah, and I got Corey Krinsky, who's the producer on Hemisphere, to, to ask questions. He and I came up with a list of questions to ask them. And I thought, I want to come up with hopefully the most entertaining questions we could ask these two, because they played pretty serious roles in the movie. I knew that they were very funny just from being on set with them. So I wanted to capture that. So that became a, a, a real tool for us. And again, I'm sliding ahead of you a little bit. No, 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 you're totally fine. But, yeah. but I knew in my head, Indie Rights doesn't require this as a deliverable, but I knew that I'm going to need, I knew from Galena, all of those assets, anything, you know, if you run into an elevator with Meryl Streep and say, Meryl, say Hemisphere, you know, anything you can grab to associate with your movie and your own cast is really, you know, those are the performers. So use, they've got the personality, use them. I, I knew that those would be valuable. So that was something I did soon enough and cut, it to, uh, cut them together and had little things waiting in the wings so that when that release date hit in late October of last year, you know, it was, uh, it felt pressure to quickly start marshalling all these things, but I had already started. Work, yeah. Which... Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, that sounds totally smart. And it's interesting because I, I spoke to a filmmaker a few weeks ago. I haven't put this episode out yet. It's coming out, should be coming out in a couple of weeks, but she said that she went with indie rights for a few films. She's made a lot of films and she went oh, with well, indie rights okay. for a few, few films and then decided to shift to film hub because she wanted more control over the, the, you know, when things got actually. Yeah. Released. Yeah. And that's, you know, so, so yeah, I've heard that, that indie rights is, it's great, you know, lots of positive things to say about it, but you don't really have the control that you do with Film Hub to kind of, you know, run your own sort of release strategy and that kind of thing, you know? If I I had known more, but the one thing that was at the time that I was looking at, the drawback for me with Film Hub is I couldn't get a human on the phone. Mm -hmm. Like it's super, it's like doing the the, what is it? If you, for college students, you do the something app, the, you know, the, you do it once and you submit it to all the universities and they right. come an app, it's called. Okay. That's what Film Hub is like. You put all this detailed data in about your film and now it's there and any aggregator can grab it. You know, you can, if you, if you place it yourself, all the assets they need are, are there, you know, the poster and, and, and other things like that. So that, is, and if I had known, if I knew a little more, that might be more attractive to me to be able to control exactly when I go to this platform or that one. Yeah. I don't currently have that knowledge. And I, I really liked that I was, I was able to talk to Linda. She's, you can schedule a Zoom call with her for half an hour. So you can sort of regularly reach out and get clarification. You can look at, you can ask for data and you'll get it, which is, that's not, that wasn't the situation on the bigger movie that I did as far as transparency. So, but I've heard good things about Film Hub as well. So. Yeah. It's, I've heard good things and bad things. Actually, Film Hub gets a lot of discussion on like Facebook groups and stuff. And yeah, there's lots of good things said, you know, it's pretty, pretty straightforward what they provide. And, and I think a lot of filmmakers like to have that kind of like very transparent, like, you know, this is just an aggregator. It's not a distributor. They're just going to put the movie, right. you know, they like that kind of simplicity. But they don't necessarily have, and they like that, you know, the control. But yeah. I've also heard the complaints that it's hard to to talk with people, to you know, get people on the phone or whatever you need to do. It's you there know, was, there was we, you know, we had. A, I should mention too, we launched Hemisphere with a different trailer, so I yeah. had two very different trailers for the movie. Interesting. And we launched it with with one trailer. This is very typical of how how I work. I don't know that the world at large likes this, but so I launched the trailer, and then. Three or four days later, my composer's like, my name's not on the trailer, the end credits. I said, what do you mean? It's not there, the end credit card. And I read it and I'm like, oh, damn, we did this trailer before I brought Marcus in as the composer. Oh, no. And so I start redoing and I'm like, oh, God, I'm going to have to ask in your rights. Hi, I'm sorry. I know we just released our movie. Can you ask Amazon if they'll let us replace? And she's like, hey, I can ask. And then 
I, she said, came back. Okay. Yeah. When can you have it to me? And I'm like, wow. Okay. I didn't <laughs> that so, so I ended up recutting the trailer that's there and, and then asking her, you know, at that point we had the second version of the trailer that was up on Amazon. And I looked back at the first version, just through all this, I was looking at both versions and I'm like, God, I really like the first version a little better because it doesn't tell me so much about the story. It tells me one scene and the two characters and it just, my gut was, that's probably going to sell it better for us. Uh, yeah. For people who know nothing about the movie, they'll be like, oh, it's two women and there's a space station and there's a, a, an AI computer. It was, it was a little more com- cohesive to me. So I took that opportunity to, to update both the end credits and the uh, trailer itself. Nice. And I don't know if that would have been my experience with Film Hub. I think that was very much just like, I asked Linda and she said, let me find, you know, just to have an advocate do that uh, is, is, is huge. And I think in other cases, I think I said, hey, what if we ever had an alt ending or a director's cut? Mm-hmm. She's like, well, we could see, you know, so I don't think they're opposed to pulling things. Not that I want them to be deluge with filmmakers asking them to do that. Yeah, yeah. But, but, uh, but, it's, but it's just, good to know it's there. Yeah, just the general notion that you actually have somebody, a person that you can interact with and ask questions and ask things of rather than just, it's just a service on the internet that you're just interacting with, you know, the the browser app or whatever it is, you know, and like, you know, the idea of having a personal connection is, you know, just not, not accepted (laughs) in that arena. I'd like to try to just take a step back and, and kind of fill in the period of time from when you finished the film. And that would have been when about? So it was a long post-process. The shooting on it overlapped with post, but I think we shot, you know, in total for about seven months. I mean, I shot six days right away, like, you know, July, August of of summer a year ago, and then a couple other fill-in days. And then when I hit sort of like a year, what is it, December of last year of 2022, I had a rough cut together. I'd gone to AFM. I didn't have any of the CGI yet. Okay. And so I just had black, I had shots, like still images of Star Trek Enterprise. And, you know, I put little text descriptions of what the CGI was going to be, but it wasn't there yet. So it really took me, I, I think the edit on, on that really was a, a, due to it being a space uh, sci-fi genre, is that it took, you know, about probably 10 to 12 weeks to do all of the CGI. Once I figured out who was going to do it, and then we would do these, like you and I are doing Zoom calls, we would do a creative collab call and he would pull up the model and adjust it. And we'd talk about where's the lens going to be? What, where's the light source? You know, is the sun out? What does it look like? You know, so it really was not completed until probably late May of last year, 2022. So, so 2022 or 23, 2023, 23. 23. Okay. 23. Yep. 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 I know when Um, you transition to a new year, the last year, it takes a while. If I count months, what is that? I don't know, eight months ago, let's say. Right, right. That it was ready to, to, and at that point, I was going out to film festivals and reaching out to distributors, not knowing which would bite. Yeah. So that's and, the other thing I should mention is I didn't know right away how this was going to happen. And I thought, maybe we'll play film festivals. There's some great sci-fi film festivals. And I entered us in a bunch of them and got into two of them and didn't get into a bunch of other ones I wanted to get into. So I think I ended up sort of making decision probably after, it was probably eight weeks, two months, not too long. I had James Cappy, who's one, who's one of the other producers on Hemisphere. He's a film school buddy. He was telling me, Chris, you don't want to be, you know, going to film festivals for eight months or a year and then trying to sell this. He's like, fine, make a decision on, you know, you talk to five distributors, pick one, go forward. And, you know, he was sort of kicking me in the pants a bit to do that, which I appreciate. So yeah, yeah, that, that was about the time frame of that. Yeah. Okay. I appreciate that. That's exactly where I was going with my question was sort of like, once you finish the film, how yeah. long did it take you to go from finishing the film to actually signing with indie rights? And what did you do in between? So it sounds like you yeah, kind it, of- was, it was probably t- maybe a, it, it was somewhere between two and three months, but it wasn't any more than that. Right. And, and again, I was benefited by having gone to AFM and working on marketing and distribution for another feature film that, you know, I carried that in my head of like, once you start talking to a couple distributors, you'll either hear a very similar story, which will, you'll immediately know, I know where this is going and I'm not interested. Or you'll hear, sometimes you talk to them and there's not enough there. You know, mm-hmm. There's some companies that do great in Latin America that aren't really strong in the US. 
And if I was doing a dual language movie, that could be very attractive. But, you know, you, you have to sort of pick what you think is going to be the right fit for your movie based on what it is. Yep, yep, yep. That makes sense. And yeah, and you've talked about how, you know, kind of what made you feel good about indie rights and and what went into that decision. Do you feel like there was a, like with indie rights, did they curate it all? Are there films that they're going to turn down? And did you have to kind of go through a process of convincing them to take your film rather than them convincing you to sign with them? Yeah, 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 yeah. That's interesting. There was a little bit of that. I think they were unaccustomed to having, they don't do a ton of sci-fi. And this was their only sort of set in space science fiction movie. And I think they were, you know, there was a little bit of apprehension about that. Interesting. So I really kind of went to bat. I just wrote an impassioned email just saying, look, I liked what you said on this, you know, interview that I watched of you. Here's the strengths that I bring. And I really focused on, I've been in the industry for a while. So I have contacts on the East and West Coast. I have a strong cast and crew and we will all work. And I, you know, will really push social media and try to market this so that it's worth your while. So, you know, but yeah, there was a certain, that's funny you asked about that because I, I, I don't know if that was anybody else's experience with them, but their first thing was that I think it was somebody lower level at the company said, you know, I don't know if this is right for us. Right. And it's like, oh, come on, you know, right. <laughs> just because I had already sort of in my head decided I like these guys, you know, yeah. I like what they stand for. So that's where I sort of went back again and thought maybe, maybe I need to just sort of explain why I think this is a good reason for them or how it can benefit both our, our companies, you know? Yeah. And kind of the reason that, that I'm asking that is that I know that Indie Rights has been getting a lot of positive attention lately. I, I just, it seems like over the past year, I've heard more and more about them. I think certainly Jay Horton has, has kind of pushed that a little bit. Yeah. You know, he's talked positively about them. And I just know that in this, in this world of, of filmmaking distribution that like, the more somebody talks good about something, the more people flock to it. And once people right. start flocking to it, then it's changing. It, it, you know, there's this kind of like this golden era where you can take kind of take advantage of something great and then too many people kind of descend on it and then it doesn't work out, you know? I suspect there'll be mo- more. There's probably a company as you and I are sitting here talking yeah. Yeah. that's forming that we don't know about, but in six months, there'll be... Uh, People be like, oh my God, you know. Exactly. Right. Super fresh. Did you go to Super Fresh? Oh, I love their, I love their layout. It's really easy to navigate. They're cool. You know, there'll be some, there's some probably Silicon Valley person trying to capitalize on this now. But uh, but you're right. There is a certain mob factor. Right, right. And I, you know, I just kind of wonder like, is indie rights like, are they flooded with movies now? Are they flooded with filmmakers that want them to distribute their film? And are, are they becoming more and more selective about which films they take? And is that a good thing or a bad thing? I, you know, I don't know. Yeah. But I just, I just always like looking in my crystal ball and trying to figure out like what, what's going to come of this. And then what's the next thing that's going to come kind of in opposition to it that will be the thing that people flock to next, you know? You know, the the thing that I'm hearing a lot about is really on the exhibition side, the digital platform side. Interesting. There are major, major rumblings that, that really the big streamers, you know, Amazon, Hulu, Netflix, they're not making their money off of the licensing fees they're charging for the movies. So they're doing AVOD. They're putting ad supported channels on to try to f- really fix their bottom line. They were bleeding money. So there's probably going to be a lot of consolidation from what I hear. And you know those things, those variables that happen there will also impact how distributors work or how filmmakers work. No doubt. Yep. It's like today there's so many choices audiences have, but then it's retracting a bit. It's like, you know, Netflix, which is like, hey, we'll give it to you. You know, you don't, you don't have to send the DVD in the, in the mail anymore. Now you just stream it and we have a huge library and we're buying more stuff. It was this great sort of heyday. And then it became like somebody, you know, the accounting department looked at their bottom line and was like, oh my God, we had a horrible 2022 year. How do we fix this? You know, yep. so those changes are equally, I think, going to be important in, in you know, how we you know, ultimately what we're doing is trying to reach an audience. We are no different than the hot dog vendors, you know, on Coney Island selling to a customer. It's just our customer is out in all these houses all around America and the world. We're sitting here and we have this amazing connection with, you know, the internet where we can all intercommunicate. It's just a matter of, so how will we do that? What will we tell them? What are our stories? And how are we going to get them out to them? You know, and in between that is your platform and your distributor. 
And that's kind of the difference between the hot dog vendor. If I can, you know, sort of interject a little know, bit on you're that. Right. right. There's, there's this, like, there's just air and there's your customer right there. Yeah, you know, yeah. And, and it's like, and that's, I think the big thing that filmmakers have to keep a really close eye on is what, who are the gatekeepers and, and how do we, and that's kind of what I was getting at with like indie rights, you know, they're a gatekeeper of sorts, right? Cause they yeah. decide whether yeah. to take your film or not, but if they're taking too many films, then maybe that loses its appeal and there's something else that's going to become the next gatekeeper. And right. and like the right. new gatekeeper on the block is always the one you want to try to find because they're kind of like, you know, they're the special one and, and right. you know, so who's that going to be? That's kind of, you know, and so who knows? I mean, like, I don't, I don't know what's going to come of it or, or anything like that, but it is that's i think the big thing that you know and and you know this podcast kind of started out like i, I was more interested maybe in interviewing people people specifically who had self-distributed their films okay and so had not yeah. signed with with a distributor and i quickly realized just after you know several episodes i quickly realized that for a lot of people like there's there's not a clear-cut line between that you know i mean definitely yeah. some people self-distribute they never sign with a distributor you know, but is Film Hub self-distributing? I guess it probably is, you know, but it's not that different from, you know, signing with Gravitas or something like that. Yeah, yeah. And so, I, you know, I quickly realized that in this world, there's not that really hard distinction between self-distribution and people like you who have signed with a distributor, but are certainly on top of things and giving lots of thought to how your film is going to get out there and get released and that kind of thing. And it, I just think as an independent it. filmmaker, you can't not do that, you know? I was going to say So that, everybody's self-distributing. I think I think the marketing aspects, I would say a third, a third, a third, and I did not yeah. know this starting, but I'd say a third of your job is going to be directing. If you're editing it or on the post side, that's a third. And marketing is a third. And I wasn't prepared for that, the marketing. I, I had never marketed anything. So the idea of taking my movie and, and flogging it, really, it's like you cut things together. What? How do I make 13-second thing that I can throw up on Twitter that's going to be funny? You know, you try to do all that and then you realize you're selling it's not yourself you're selling this this thing you've created that other people are invested in your your crew your actors you know so it's you're doing it there's a you know i don't want to get too religious about it but you're doing it for a higher a higher cause you're Understood. doing it for, yeah. for others beyond yourself so that that for me is something to keep in mind but it requires you know you got to be ready for it it's going to be like it'll it'll demand more time than you think to feed those various social media accounts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and I think that just to kind of add to that thought a little bit, like you said something about it not being about yourself, you're, you know, you're, you're not selling yeah. yourself. But I do think that there's something to be said for viewing it that way in the sense that it kind of runs counter to that narrative of the 90s and the great film that gets out oh, and gets discovered right. yeah. is I think that filmmakers these days have to be more in it for the long game. They have to be thinking about, you know, multiple films and, and, right. you know, trying to get one film out so that it can at least be successful enough to sort of sustain them into the next film and the next film. And, you know, maybe one of those films along the way will be the great film that gets them discovered, or, you know, who knows. But, and so I think it, I think, you know, maybe in some, situations, not to contradictory, but I do think in some situations it is kind of about yourself. It's built about building a fan base about you as a filmmaker, you know, right. and that's an important thing for filmmakers to think about. It's uh, it's It was surprising. It was great. A couple of the critical reviews, they, you know, when they talk about the directing, there were some cool things that you read it and you're like, okay, that's great. They, they noticed this or that. Right. You have some intention and somebody actually gets it and points it out. So yes, you're right. And, gets and that somebody that like, did something. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, okay, the, my goal is to direct things that an audience will connect with. So to the extent I can do that, you're right. It is about, this is film number one. I have, you know, a couple other scripts and things that I'm developing now that, you know, I'm going to pick one of those and that'll be the second. But the idea is to do enough. And as I learn, get better at giving the audience something that that they're going to enjoy, you know, because yeah. you have to, I do think that's another area that Hollywood has kind of got a bigger studios have gotten very disconnected from their audiences. You know, you see these Marvel movies and big comic book movies coming out and people on social media are putting their noses up and going, I, I don't, I don't want this, you know, this is message oriented or it's something else. It's not what they're there for. So you have to always think of really always be thinking of your audience, you know, because They'll tell you, you know, based on whether they show up or not or what things they respond to in your movie. Yeah. And and I think that, you know, it kind of comes full circle to how we started this conversation a little bit, which is that 
the technology has become so it's become so affordable for filmmakers to make movies and the technology is allowing us to put our movies out there so easily to potentially reach so many people you know not necessarily reach them but at least you know anybody in the world right now can log on to the internet and see your movie right. you know yeah absolutely that, that that is you know creating an enormous sense of democratization of filmmaking and 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 an opportunity for filmmakers to reach specific audiences and then that gets back to the subject of gatekeepers like do we go through those gatekeepers to do that or not you know yeah i you know i don't really have any any anything more to say on that i just think it's a, just a, again a fascinating time because of that opportunity it, that it we is. have to sort yeah. of run against that current of the studios deciding what we're going to see you know there's yes. always been independent filmmakers that are trying to buck that trend but it's never been easier to buck the to to go out there and buck the trend as much as you possibly can as it is today because of the internet because again you can get anybody of the seven eight billion people in the world <laughs> go to your go to their computer and well, watch that, your movie what, that you know yeah what what you hope this is something <laughs> yeah. i always say about writing a script is i think the there's the two most important things are you know who are your characters and why are they there yeah. why are they experiencing this and if you can come up with a good emotional reason that an, an audience can, will understand then somebody's going to, you'll have some sort of audience for the movie, whether they love the love story part of it or the thriller part of it, or, you know, but they'll connect with that, you know? So you try to put in a father-son relationship or a sister-sister, or you try to come up with somewhere in the center of your movie, at least that's the approach I use. That yeah, I, yeah. I feel like whatever you're rolling the dice with, with everything else, put in some things that, are, that really that are universal that way. Totally agree. And I think that that gets back to a comment I made earlier about how it doesn't matter that you may, may not have the most eye-catching, visually sci-fi, beautiful landscape. You know, you're basically, you built what you needed to do to tell the story that you wanted to tell. And it's the story that resonates with people, hopefully, most of the time. Yes, hopefully. Yes. <laughs> and that's, at least that's, you know, filmmakers like working at a low budget level like you and I, that's what we are wanting to do, I think, is find yeah. ways to reach those audiences on an, you know, on an emotional level and and not just dazzle them with how much, you know, special effects we can do. I, it's something the studios miss constantly. Yeah. You know, yeah. you can see, I love Godzilla Minus One because it has, it's both a great, great monster movie. Yeah. yeah. And it has this great understanding of these are good relationships. This is not something you see every day in a movie, you know. But I feel like Hollywood misses that. So it's like that's an opportunity. If you're an indie filmmaker and somebody's playing this game over here and they're missing all these opportunities, you're like, let me go on the field and this my field's over here and and try to see if you can do a better job yep. at it. You know? Try to try to see if my hot dog is better than the generic yes, hot dog you're you putting go. out. You know, is exactly. there some special exactly. spice in it or something that you know, some way I cooked it that makes it, you know, more appealing than all of the generic stuff they're putting out there. That's how like the that, right? Nathan's guy did it, I think, because he had yeah. some special spices in it. Right, right, right. And, and you know, now it's still around 120 years later or whatever. Yep. Yeah, 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 totally. Yeah, so we've been on, I think, for, for more than an hour here. Really appreciate everything oh, you've yeah, said. Yeah. It's been really great talking with you. I just, I guess, wanted to know, wanted to just cover like so far, to the extent that you can or are willing to comment, like so far, how is the movie doing? How is it been performing and yeah, is so it up it, to your it, expectations, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. It's it's it did well fourth quarter of last year, which I was pleased with. You know, the November, December bump, I saw that. What you get, the metrics that I have are really minutes watched. And then you have to sort mm -hmm. of do some math to figure out if they watch the whole movie or part of the movie. But, right. But presumably if they paid for it, they hopefully watched the whole yeah. movie. But yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. It's doing well in the UK, actually really well there. Nice. And then there's rest of world. There's some other English language territories we've seen that it's doing okay also. But it really will come down to, I won't know until we get our first sales report, which is, you know, late March, which I'll get for fourth quarter. And then I'll see, but I've been able to at least track it. And I can see definitely there's a tie to holiday season. Mm -hmm. And, you know, now is traditionally considered sort of a, a slower period, but because of the strikes and things that went on, you know, with the Hollywood sort of movie circuit, there's still a hole in the schedule. So I think there's still great opportunity for indies now. So I'm continuing to market it. And yeah. I'm sure on Valentine's Day, we'll put up some sort of social thing about that. You know, you look for a little, any way to tie it into people's lives in some clever way. Right, right, right. Totally. 
so is it are you feeling are you feeling optimistic about that goal of yours is to at least make your money back are you feeling like that's an achievable goal at this point still... i think it is yeah, yeah yeah i think between you know we haven't gone really aside from the uk we really haven't gone internationally so all that happens after con film festival in may yeah so the hope is that we'll do well in certain territories overseas that like sci-fi you know nice but i think combining those two i think we'll we'll get to a good break even point this year and then I think beyond that, you know, I, I have no idea. At some point, I'll be engaged in the new project and won't be able to look at Hemisphere. Right now, yeah. Hemisphere is still a little <laughs> bit like my needy child. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, you know, I'm still buying her nice clothes and, you know, taking her to, to parties and that stuff and keeping her entertained. But at some point, I'll have to say, okay, you're on your own for a little while. I have this new thing I need to focus on. So that'll probably come sooner than later. But yeah, there's a lot of it, you know, that you'll... that. It just it just comes over time and it's almost better to not look at it while it's happening to look away do something else yeah and you'll be surprised you know you can't always tell where the things will come from or just wait for the check in the mail <laughs> you open right. the check and yes. you know, <laughs> it's either like you know three dollars or you know something that actually is substantial but who knows yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah cool um well I, I wish you the best of best of luck with it thank you you know it's a fun film it's really amazing the way that you put it together. And it sounds like you've put a lot of thought into how to get it out there, how to get it seen by audiences. You know, I love the idea of just being able to make sci-fi movies. I love sci-fi, being able to make them in this <laughs> inexpensive, I, I do you know, have, DIY way. I have a couple way. other ideas yeah. that are equally small. And awesome. yeah, just having done it once, I'm like, all right, I want to do something else, but I definitely want to do more sci-fi. Yeah, cool. All right. Well, I definitely look forward to your your future career in, in filmmaking you. and other movies that you make. Is there anything else that we didn't cover that you wanted to cover in our conversation? Anything? No, no, this was great. I really appreciate you giving me time to talk through this and hopefully this sharing this is helpful for people in your audience. Yeah, yeah, I think so. That's why I do this podcast. So hopefully it is. And you you have a film as well though, right? That you're working I, on? I do. Yeah. Sure. I'm in I'm in sort of long-term pre-production right now for okay. a horror, horror film that I'll be shooting next year in June, July next year. Right. So I did three short films this past summer as kind oh, of prep wow. for that, kind of practice okay. and, you know, maybe get some promotional material and stuff like that. So I'm kind of heavy on pre heavy into post-production for those shorts, hoping to get those out, you know, within the next few months, get maybe play them in festivals and get a little bit more Good. attention yeah, to myself, absolutely. you know, that kind of thing. But yeah, I, I, you know, I've got some, a few kind of bigger production design concerns that I need a long ramp to be able to accomplish by next year. Yeah. So I'm already working right. on those. And yeah, it's pretty exciting. Been working on the script some, kind of fine-tuning that. So yeah, it's it's all, you know, starting to come together, which is pretty fun, pretty exciting, That's and awesome. a little scary. <laughs> so I watched to get confidence with Hemisphere. There was a, a Spielberg interviews from the 70s on oh, like yeah. Dick Cavett, yeah. Tom Snyder, oh, talking cool. about close encounters or jaws. And I would watch those and watch how he talked. And I'm like, this guy's so comfortable being yeah. a geek. <laughs> I thought, just do that because I know at heart that's I'm a geeky guy. So I just took that to the set. And I'm like, whatever I say, I'll, whatever, I'll say something funny or I'll make a joke or whatever. You know, it was a way of keeping the set the way I would like a set to be. But, you know, you'll find similar things, whatever your way of managing a set will come to you. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, I, that's one of the reasons why I made those shorts is I, I wanted to, I had, like I said, I started to say that I made a documentary two decades ago. That's the only feature film oh, I've wow. ever made. Yeah. And so getting back into narrative filmmaking, I wanted to really brush up on my skills. And definitely one of those skills was people skills. You know, my ability to just direct a crew and and, yeah. and actors, you know, I hadn't done that for so long, basically since film school that I wanted to re-familiarize myself with that process. So it was absolutely invaluable to be able to do that and interact with a crew again before getting so heavily invested in a feature film. Right, right. So yeah, just to wrap up, where can people follow you, support your work, that kind of thing? Anything yeah, yeah, yeah. Plug? I think yeah. on Instagram, it's Hemisphere Movie. Okay. And we have a Twitter account as well under Hemisphere. And then we have a YouTube page that's my production company, Trujillo Creek Pictures. Oh, great. But other than that, you know, Hemisphere is on Amazon Prime. Check it out. Google Play. I think it's even free on Tubi if you if you don't mind the commercial. So Well, I think we're dealing with that with Amazon now too. So Yeah, like, I know. I, I just I turned on Amazon and started to watch a movie a week ago or so and got the thing. Like, we're going to show you commercials yeah, now. And so I, I paid for good. it. I don't want to watch commercials. So my wife I just... was good for like the first commercial. And then she got the next one. She's like, okay, how much is it? And I looked, it's like $2.99. She's like, just 
Yeah, right. totally. I, so. I didn't even think twice about it. I was like, I don't care. I like, I yeah, hate, exactly. I hate it's feeding them more money, you know, but I just can't watch with commercials. I can't yeah, watch movies same, with commercials. Same. It's just, yeah, <laughs> it's too frustrating. So, which is, you know, unfortunately, because I'd like to support filmmakers on Tubi. I know filmmakers kind of get a little bit more money on Tubi than they do this on is Amazon. What I, hear. I have less, again, I'm, I'll be really curious to look at that on the, yeah. Uh, yeah, because it's changing, is. I think, you know, yeah. lots of things are changing at Tubi. So I don't know if that's going to continue. But I, you know, tried that for a little while, like watching filmmakers movies on Tubi instead of Amazon. And I just couldn't handle the commercials. I just don't yeah. like yeah. it. I don't like being interrupted, especially since they're sometimes so awkwardly placed. It's it just seems like it's takes it's me right out of the time movie. an advertiser wants to run an ad and it interrupts the film and plays. It. Yeah. So it's yeah. A, somebody said Tubi is a it's an advertising software. It wasn't written for movies for movie distribution. Um, a company bought it and utilized it because it was so effective at placing ads. Oh, wow. So That's really interesting. I've that, never heard like, that. Oh, and they said, yeah, so advertisers have a lot of money at the end of the year. Um, so in December, you want your project to be out there on Tubi because more advertisers are trying to burn through their budget for the year. And so yeah, stick interesting. Be like, put it in Levi's app, put it the, put a Clairol, whatever the you know product is. You'll see all these things, more commercials, November, December of the year than any other time. So I probably like it then, but otherwise I'm like you. It's like it interrupts <laughs> at the wrong time. All right, cool. Well, yeah, I think that's that's all. I really appreciate you coming okay. on, talking Absolutely. openly about your experience all the way through. It's been a really great conversation. So Great. Thanks very much. I appreciate it. Paul. Yeah, my pleasure. All right, that's all for today. Thanks, everybody, for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please do rate and or review the podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. That is the best way that you can help me grow the show and reach a wider audience of independent filmmakers and others who just want to try to understand this crazy, crazy world of independent film distribution. As always, feel free to contact me directly with any feedback or suggestions for the show. You can find me on Twitter, or should I say X, or Instagram at DarkRoseColin, or you can email me at Colin at DarkRosePictures.com. That's Colin with one L, C-O-L-I-N, at DarkRosePictures.com. And by the way, DarkRosePictures.com is my website for my feature and other projects. Its purpose is not just to promote my films, but to tell the story with honesty and transparency of my own personal filmmaking journey. So if you want to follow the process of an independent filmmaker from development to distribution, this is a great way to do that. So check it out, DarkRosePictures.com. Anyway, a big thank you to Chris Mays for sharing his experiences making and releasing Hemisphere. Another big thank you to Jeff Frymuth for his fantastic editing work. I have so many great guests lined up for you in the coming weeks, talking all things indie distribution. So please stay tuned, keep getting those movies out there into the world, and thank you so much for listening. Listening.